So tonight, we're continuing our discussion in Colossians 3 about putting on the new man. So if you haven't already, you can turn in your Bibles with me to Colossians 3. And tonight, we're looking at uh, verses 14 through 17. But last week, we talked about what it means to put on the new man, which is something you can do only if you're saved, because that's the only way you have the new man because you only become a new creature when you're in Christ and when you become a new creature then you have the new man we saw the uh in second corinthians 5 17 that you become a new creature if you're in Christ but having the new man isn't the same thing as putting on the new man no having the new man is a once and done thing when you get saved you get a new eternal life in Christ and you're secured in that forever because Jesus sacrifice pays for your sins Uh, That sacrifice on the cross pays for all your sins, past, present, and future. You get saved by accepting that sacrifice for yourself, so that payment gets applied to you. And once you have the new man, you're good. You don't have to keep getting it. It's not like something that you lose. But putting on the new man is different. That's a daily decision you have to make. Because even if you have the new man, you still have that old man, your sinful, fleshly self, uh, that you're stuck with until this life is over. And that's, that's the Christian life. You've got the old man and the new man. They're fighting over your decisions, and you pick who's in charge. And every day, every decision you make, you decide whether the old man or the new man is going to be the one calling the shots. And the goal of living a successful Christian life is to continue putting off the new man and putting on the new man so that your new spiritual self that's pure and connected to Jesus Christ uh, can be living the right way, and you can have your life pointed in the direction that God wants your life to be pointed in. And last week we talked about the only real way uh, to do that in your personal life is by allowing God's word to get inside of you on a daily basis and change your life so that you can be conformed to the image of Christ more and more as you progress, as you grow. So that you can continue to gain the mind of Christ so that you can be renewed day by day. And last week we talked about what doing that looks like as a group, as a local church, uh, corporately, as the body of Christ. Because when we each decide to put on the new man, the result should be the, renew- the removal of divisions between us. Because as each of us more and more conform, to our mind, or conform our mind to Christ and our lives to him, then the petty divisions that the world tries to throw at us, uh, those disappear. And we talked about some of those divisions last week. But we remain focused on the important eternal things of God, on sharing the gospel, on making disciples, on learning and growing in his word, and on meeting the needs of of others in love. We're focused on the things above, like Colossians 3.2 says, not on things of the earth. And that's, and that's the goal. That's the point of putting on the new man. That's the point of doing it individually and doing it together uh, so that we, both individually and collectively, can, can have our minds set on things uh, that our minds need to be focused on. And the natural result of doing that together is that we simply treat each other right. And we looked at all the specific ways that Colossians 3 highlights about how we should be treating one another. But the discussion of what putting on the new man looks like continues tonight in a more general sense as we get into verses 14 through 17. And I'll read those. It says, And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And so in this passage, we see four separate ways 
that putting on the new man plays out in our lives. You put on charity. You let the peace of God rule in your hearts. You let the word of Christ dwell in you richly by singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And you do whatever you do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those are the four things we're going to look at tonight. But before we look at those things, I want to make sure you notice the, the pronouns that are used in this passage. Because remember, Paul is addressing this letter, this letter to the Colossians, to the church of the Colossians. So it's written to a group of people at a church. So it shouldn't surprise you to see that these sentences are addressed using plural pronouns. And we'll talk about that. And if the idea of plural pronouns sounds a bit weird to you, you're in luck because I've got a bit of an English lesson for everyone tonight. Didn't know you were getting that, right? That This is free. Anybody enjoy English in high school? Well, good. Some of us, that's more than I thought. I didn't. And now I regret that I didn't work harder in English class. You know, when a large part... Well, a large part of my job is reading and understanding scripture and writing sermons like this to communicate what the Bible says. English makes that easier because the Bible's written in English. But even if you didn't like English in school, we all at least have the basics down because it's, it's our native language. It's, it's the language we grew up in. So even if you don't understand all the terminology right away, uh, hopefully what we're looking at tonight is, uh, is pretty simple. But that's completely fine, even if you don't like English. But remember, our job is to, or what our job is with the Bible. According to 2 Timothy 2.15, we're to study it to show ourselves approved unto God. And because we have the Bible in English, we have to understand some things about English to study it properly. So let's talk about pronouns. What is a pronoun? Well, we all know what a pronoun is. Maybe you don't use that word very often, but pronoun is just a word like he, she, I, me, they, you, it. They're short words, they're nouns that refer to other nouns that are about to be mentioned or have been mentioned before. They're just ways to abbreviate your speech. So if I write or say a sentence like, Brock drank some milk and he really made a mess, (laughs) he is a pronoun that's referring back to Brock. So I didn't have to say Brock's name twice, because who wants to do that? So it makes (laughs) what you have to say shorter. Pronouns make it easier to communicate without having to repeatedly identify other nouns. So I have this table of pronouns that we'll go through on the screen. This is fun. Trust me. You're going to love this, I promise. So we'll, we'll... this is going to help us examine different types of pronouns so we can understand the, the audience of, of this passage. And so first you have first-person pronouns. Want to get those up? All right. First-person pronouns are when the writer or the speaker of the sentence is the noun being referred to. So I am the subject of the sentence when I do something. So every subject, sentence has a subject and a verb. The subject is the thing doing the verb. And I am the object of the sentence when something happens to me. That's the difference between I and me. The object of the sentence, the verb is being done to that. So I and me are both pronouns, but one is the subject and one is the object. But if the subject is plural and I'm a part of it, we do something or something happens to us. And you can see the similarities with the possessive pronouns. If the pronoun... Uh, describes an item that belongs to me, it is my item. And if the pronoun is referring directly to the item that belongs to me, then that item is mine. You see what I'm getting at? These are, these are 
These are the easy ones. Uh, the same with our and ours. Those are just the plural of that. So skip down to the third person because uh, those are the other easy ones which, which refer to someone else. He, she, him, her. Those are singular pronouns along with his, her, his, and hers um, for the possessive ones. And when there's more than one person being referred to, it's, it's plural with they or them, depending on whether it's the subject or the object of the sentence. But the second person pronouns are the tricky ones. Those refer to the person that the sentence is written to. And if you're trying to copy this table down in your notes, don't write this middle part down yet, because um, it's, it's not overly helpful for what we're looking at. Because in English today, we don't distinguish between singular, plural, subject, or object when you're talking about second-person pronouns. We say, you did something, or something happened to you. If I'm talking to a group, it says those, sen- or those sentences would essentially r- remain the same. You did something together, or, or something happened to all of you. We use the same word for all of those different cases. Unless you're from the South, in which case you might say, y'all did something, uh, which is actually more helpful, but... You can't talk like that around here. People will laugh at you. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just different. Um, So in present day English, it can be difficult to determine what a pronoun is referring to, even with context, because complex sentences can have multiple nouns that could be referred to with a second person pronoun. So if I looked at Brock again and I've said, if you joined a group of you, which of you would be the first to make fun of you? That sucks. You end up saying the word you a lot. It's, it's not overly helpful. You have to kind of clarify as you go. But luckily, Scripture is a little bit different. If you use a King James Bible, the slightly older language in it will distinguish between the second person pronouns for you a little bit more clearly. So you ever wonder why the Bible uses words like thee and thou and ye and thy and thine? Well, this is why. You got the next one? Okay, cool it distinguishes between these different use cases of pronouns. It makes a sentence easier to understand when you can just look at a pronoun and understand whether it's referring to the subject or the object of the sentence and understand whether it's plural or singular. So the subject or object takes a second to learn, just like the difference between I and me, uh, but once you get it, it's good. But the singular, uh, singular and plural thing, that's easy. All you have to do with the second person pronoun is look at the first letter of the pronoun. If it's a T, it's singular. If it's a Y, it's plural. And so people often complain about the KJV because it contains these words that we don't use anymore. But it actually makes things a little bit clearer if you're trying to figure out what a sentence is saying. And it's especially helpful when you consider how often Scripture uses second person pronouns because a lot of scripture is addressed to the reader. Most of Paul's letters are written to a group of people. Uh, and so I bring that up tonight for a couple reasons. Uh, first, because we've had a bunch of new people recently. There's a lot of new faces in here, and not everybody's aware of that. And it personally helped me better understand scripture, uh, the scripture that I'm reading or studying, because somebody taught me that. Um, so I wanted to bring that up tonight, because I wanted you to notice, but in also I wanted to bring that up, because in this passage Uh, only plural pronouns are used in all these various commands. Um, So he's only talking to groups of people. Uh, He's talking to the church. He's not just talking to individuals. So when we talk about putting on charity or letting the peace of God rule in your hearts, sure, we should be doing that in our own personal life, but we should also be doing that together as a group, as a local church, in everything that we do. 
So all the stuff we're talking about tonight are things that we're all supposed to do together and not try to accomplish these things on our own. And we should be holding each other accountable for doing those things as a group. It's a group effort. Hopefully that made sense. That wasn't too rough of an English lesson, was it? Good. I wish my teachers in school would have taught me that quick lesson. That would have helped me reading the Bible. But we don't use ye and you and or ye and thee and thou that much anymore. But if you if you read the Bible a lot, you see them a lot. So there you go. So with that, let's dig into these four things that we mentioned uh, that we're looking at tonight. And the first one is charity. And we get that in verse 14. It says, and above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. So above all these things is referring to what we talked about last week. Um, the stuff about treating each other right, having mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, all that stuff from verses 12 and 13. Above those things, we're to put on charity. And we all have an idea of what charity is because when you give money to a charity, the expectation is they take that money and they use it to help people who need something. They do something with it. Well, charity, in a more general sense, is, is love, but it's not a feeling or emotion. Charity is love in action. We see that in 1 Corinthians 8.1, which ends with knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. So as we gain knowledge, as we learn and grow, as we study our Bibles and learn God's word, we aren't supposed to just sit on that information. That puffs us up. It gives us a big head. Uh, we're, we're supposed to use what we learn to edify others in love. That's charity. Doing something as the result of your love for others. Charity is an incredibly important thing for us to make a part of our daily lives. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, he says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. So Paul understood that everything he did required charity in order to be effective ministry for God. Even if he had offered his body to be burned, it would have meant nothing if he didn't do it in charity if he did it for the wrong reasons. If Paul did something out of any other motivation besides his love for other people, it profited him nothing. He didn't give his body to be burned, by the way. Uh, he, didn't, he wasn't burnt at the stake or anything like that. Uh, nor did he give all of his goods to feed the poor. Um, and this is, this is the end of a list of things from verses 1 to 3 uh, that are exaggerations of things he didn't do. But he's exaggerating to make a point. Even if he could do wonderful, amazing things and make the ultimate sacrifices to help others. If his motivations were selfish, th those actions weren't going to please God. If he wasn't motivated by love and putting that love into action, he wasn't going to be properly serving the Lord. So we need to put on charity. 1 Timothy 1.5 tells us, Now the end of the commandment is charity, out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of a faith unfeigned. So True biblical charity is the result of having a pure heart, a good conscience, and an unfeigned or, an un, or a genuine and unfaked faith. That's only possible if we decide to put off the old man and living for ourselves. We, we put, put that stuff away. And we finally decide to put on the new man and start living for God instead. We can only have that pure charity if we get our lives and our hearts in line with God. And in so doing, we get our lives and our hearts in line with each other because the more like God, we all look. The more in the image of Christ we all are, the more we're all on the same page. 
So not only can we serve each other and take care of the other people in our church, but we can also have a heart motivated to do whatever we can to reach the lost world with the saving news of the gospel, both individually and together as a group, both in your personal life and in our activities together. Colossians 3.14 ends with mentioning that charity is the bond of perfectness. It's the glue. It's the bond that holds everything you do together. In 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7, charity is the seventh of seven things that we're to add to our faith. It's the final step in getting our hearts in line with God's heart. So it's the real thing to strive for. It's what we need to surround all the things we do in life with is charity. Because if we can successfully put on charity, motivation for serving the Lord is naturally gonna follow. And the next thing that's naturally gonna follow is number two, the peace of God. And that's what, Verse 15 says in Colossians 3, says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. So it's assumed here that we already have access to the peace of God because we're told to let it rule in our heart. So what is the peace of God? Well, let's first look at what it isn't. Uh, Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we see peace with God rather than peace of God. And we see that peace with God is simply your salvation. If you've given your life to Christ, if you've placed your faith in him, you've been justified by faith, you've been reconciled to God where at one point you were his enemy, now you're on his side, you have peace with him. And, but the peace of God is something different. And that's not just a guess because the word of is different than the word with although that is a key indication that two things are different is when they're, they're different words. Um, <laughs> but we'll see that in Philippians 4, 7 through 9. It says, And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if, and if there be any praise, think on these things, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. So the peace of God is the result of you remembering the things found in God's word, the things that are true, the things that are honest, the things that are just, the whole list. Remembering those things and thinking on them and then doing them, that will give you a peace in your circumstances that passes all understanding regardless of what weird circumstances you might be going through. So we have access to the peace of God anytime we want just by picking up the Bible and reminding ourselves of what is true. John 14, 26 and 27 tell us that, that peace comes as a result of having the Holy Ghost. It comes with the Holy Ghost, which all of us who are saved have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. But we don't always take advantage of that. We don't always let the peace of God rule in our hearts. We sometimes decide to allow the frustrating circumstances in our lives to guide and direct our emotions or anxiety. And that's not healthy because we should only be allowing God and his word to guide and direct what we feel and what we do, especially if we want to be effectively serving the Lord and living our life for him. So just as we've been talking about, or pretty consistently these past few weeks, the key to letting the peace of God rule in your heart is by cracking that Bible open every day and allowing it to continue changing your life on a daily basis. And I realize we've been talking a lot about that, and maybe some of you aren't quite how to, sure how to do that. Um, it really is as simple as it sounds. You just make it a daily part of your life. You 
ask God to show you truth from Scripture to conform you to the image of Christ. You crack that Bible open to anywhere you want, start reading, normally making notes about what you're reading or what you're learning, and then you talk to other believers about what God is showing you, and then you change your life so that it matches what you're reading so you can be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And there's all kinds of ways that you can do that. Most people do what's called a reading plan where you just download an app on your phone and it tells you specific chapters to read each day. And normally you do that so you can read through the entire Bible over the course of a year. And that's something I try to do every year. That isn't something that you should be content with doing just once in your life. No, I read the Bible once. I don't need to read it again. Like that's not how God's word works. God's word can change you over and over and over again. And so I try to read the Bible every year because we can't stop allowing the Bible to change us. And if you really want to start learning how to study the Bible, uh, how to study what you're reading in Scripture and connecting different parts of the Bible together, consider signing up for discipleship. We've had a lot of people take advantage of that. It's just a, a, a one-on-one thing where you'll get matched up with somebody who's been down the road a little bit longer than you and you'll go through the basic truths of Scripture together and you'll start learning how to study and see cross-references and seeing how the Bible all fits together and it's a cohesive uh, piece that's consistent from start to finish. It is a bit of a commitment, but the process of discipleship will help you walk through some of the basic truths of Scripture so that you can see how to arrive at truth logically and consistently using only the Bible as your source for truth and authority. Because what I say, who cares what I say? I have nothing to offer you, but the Bible has everything to offer each of us. And so if you can learn how to get a hold of the Bible and study and learn for yourself, uh, man, God's going to use that to change you uh, like, like he couldn't do otherwise. And so, uh, man, take advantage of that. If you want to grow, you can't stop spending time in God's word, and discipleship is a cool way to uh, allow you to be more effective at that. Because God uses our time with him to give us peace regardless of our circumstances, and we have to let that peace rule in our hearts if we don't want to get caught up in the mess that the world tries to throw at us. That's how we can remain thankful, like this verse in Colossians gets at, regardless of where we find ourselves. And that's really the only way that we can be effective together as one body. Without the peace of God, without reminding ourselves of what, that, of what God says that's true and acting on it, we'd end up divided as we'd all get caught up in our own particular brand of turmoil. Because the world is not a calm, peaceful place. So thank the Lord we have his word to remind us that he's in control and thank the Lord that we have each other to weather the storms with. And one of the ways that we weather the storms together is point number three, corporate worship. Like Marisa said at the beginning, we sing songs together. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So this corporate worship is based on the word of Christ dwelling in us, teaching and admonishing one another. So again, it assumes we already have access to the word of Christ, which we do. We all have the Bible in our hands. But again, we don't always let it dwell in us. And that's what we're trying to do. The natural result of doing that is teaching and admonishing one another through worshiping the Lord together. And singing is specifically mentioned here. But it's important to know that worship doesn't always involve singing. In fact, take a look at the first time the word worship is used in the Bible. In Genesis 22, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac, 
Uh, Genesis 22, 5, Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. So they go up the hill. Abraham gets ready to sacrifice his son. God interrupts him and has, a, has him sacrifice a ram instead. But scripture never records them singing. But Abraham still considers what they did there to be worship. So even though worship doesn't always involve singing, what we find consistent throughout scripture is that uh, worship always involves sacrifice. Whether that's a literal sacrifice in the Old Testament or whether you're making a living sacrifice yourself like we saw last week in Romans 12 verse 1. But not only are we supposed to be living sacrificially individually, we should be living in worship with one another as well. And that normally plays out with us singing together before and after church services or on Tuesday nights, though it does play out in other ways as we serve sacrificially with one another. But our worship with one another has to be based on the word of Christ. We can't just expect to come together believing all sorts of different doctrinal things and just hold hands and sing kumbaya and ignore the fact that, uh, you know, you think we can lose our salvation and I don't think we could do that. Like, we all have to have the same uh, foundation on, on the doctrine of the word of Christ. So remember, we're to be of one mind. We're to share the mind of Christ. That's why John 4.24 says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So as we grow together, as we, as we learn truth more and more, our ability to worship God with one another will only increase. And specifically, it says we're supposed to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is where it gets fun. The typical teaching here that, that you'll normally hear if you listen to an old preacher is that psalms are actual psalms found in the book of psalms. And sometimes we sing those, or we at least sing songs that are modern adaptations of the words used in those psalms. And hymns, well, you find those in a hymnal. Those are the the books in the back of church pews uh, that that people from the past used before churches had projectors with words on the screens. And spiritual songs are just other songs that we sing that aren't found in a hymnal and they're not in the book of psalms. That's all... So, so <laughs> some, some people say, you know, spiritual songs, those are the, the cool songs that we like to sing. Um, we don't like to sing the hymnal songs. We don't like to sing the psalm songs. We just like the spiritual songs. Um, that's all well and good. People have taught that for years. I've been taught that by different people throughout my life, and that's fine. I don't like it. Um, that sits weird with me. The only, the only, so the only things that are psalms are what David wrote thousands of years ago. Nobody can write anything similar to what David wrote, and, and it's not called a psalm. Uh, nobody can write a song, psalm and sing it to worship God. And the only things we can sing that are hymns are old-sounding songs from before the 90s. Like, that's a little, like wh- what was the cutoff there? Like, I guess projector, sc- like the technology of projector screens <laughs> determines what's a hymn and what's a spiritual song uh, just based on when a song, song was written. Um, and spiritual songs is just the catch-all category that all modern worship music falls under. Like I said, I think that's weird. Maybe you don't. That's okay. Um, that's not a hill that I'm dying on. But uh, Jeff Bartell taught on this topic a few years ago, and I think his logic's a little bit more consistent with what Scripture says. So I'm stealing what he said, and I put that on your sheet. And that's letter A, psalms are songs that you sing to God. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 16, 9 says, sing unto him, sing songs unto him, 
talk ye of all his wondrous works. So you've got scripture connecting singing psalms with singing directly to God, singing unto him. That one's pretty clear. And over and over throughout the psalms, David and the other psalmists are singing directly to God. They're, they're talking to him. And so I've prepared a short clip of one song that I think is an example of a psalm, a song that you sing to God. You want to play that? Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. So you're singing to God. The lyrics are directed to God. You're talking to Him. Hymns are a little less clear because the word hymn or hymns only shows up like four times in Scripture, and it doesn't really give you too much of a description of what's being sung about. Um, and so, but the definition of the word in hymn indicates, letter B, hymns are songs that you sing about God. And if you're wanting to see where someone in scripture sings a hymn, you can see that in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14, but it doesn't actually tell you what words they sang. It just says, and when they had sung a hymn, they did this. And you know, Bible scholars, you'll, you'll probably find, if you have like a a Bible with center column references or something like that. You might have a note that says they probably sang this and this, and I don't, it's hard to tell what they sang because it's not recorded in Scripture. It just says they sang a psalm, or a hymn, I'm sorry. But the definition of the word hymn from Webster's 1828 Dictionary is a song or ode in honor of God. And I use Webster's 1828 Dictionary because it's older, it's closer to the language that's used in a, in a King James Bible. So admittedly, this one's hard to nail down. So put an asterisk on it, on your sheet. Um, we don't use the, the dictionary as the word of God, but you know, a song in ode or honor of God doesn't have to be written to God, uh, but it certainly would be written about God. So we, we can be pretty sure that a hymn is different than a psalm, again, because they're two different words. But it makes sense to me, because we sing some songs to God, and other songs we sing about God. And similarly, I've prepared a clip of a song that I think is an example of a hymn. You want to play that one? Get the new look from God's Word. The inward look, the outward look, the upward look from the authorized book. Get the new look from the old book. Get the new look from God's Word. So the lyrics in some songs... The lyrics in some songs aren't toward God like a conversation. Rather, they're about God or about something related to God. So in this case, it was about his word. It was about the Bible. So, so if, we're, if we're going with that, if we're going with psalms or songs you sing to God and hymns or songs you sing about God, what about spiritual songs? Well, my favorite explanation for that, which again, I'm stealing from Jeff, is letter C. Spiritual songs are songs that you don't sing. That's weird, but check it out. Because the verse in Colossians goes on to say, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In your hearts. And I get it. That's actually an ambiguous sentence. Are you doing the singing in your heart or are you singing out loud while the grace is in your heart? Uh, That one could go either way. But look at Ephesians 5.19. It says something similar. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So this one's for sure, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And that's consistent with the understanding of how the word spiritual is used in other parts of Scripture when it's describing something. 1 Corinthians 10, 
uh, three through four says, and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So here we have spiritual meat and spiritual drink which you don't physically eat or drink. So spiritual food is food that you don't eat. And 1 Peter 2.5 says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So we as New Testament Christians are to offer up spiritual sacrifices, but we know we're not supposed to do animal sacrifices anymore. A spiritual sacrifice is something that you do in your spirit. So a spiritual sacrifice is a sacrifice that you don't kill. So again, I think there's some wiggle room on this point, and I'm not going to tell you to get out the door if you disagree with me, but it makes sense that spiritual songs are songs you sing in your heart, in your spirit, and not out loud. Because our worship shouldn't be limited to the small amount of time we spend together singing each week. Our worship should be a daily process of making those spiritual sacrifices, singing those spiritual songs in our hearts to God. The way we live should be in worship to the Lord and in reverence and in awe and submission to him, which is all reflected in the songs we sing when we're together. Does that make sense? All right. So both individually and together, uh, man, we should... We should be living our lives in worship. But what it really comes down to is point number four, our daily ministry. And that's in verse 17. It says, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And this is probably the simplest one, but it's the most overlooked. And, this point, and the point here is to do everything you do as a representative of Jesus Christ. Because we are Jesus Christ's representatives in this world. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 puts it a different way in verse 20. It says, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. Because when we give our life to Christ, we take his name on ourselves. We even call ourselves Christians. It's got Christ in the name. So whatever we do, we should be doing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we're his body, we're his representation on this earth, we're his ambassadors uh, we'll see something similar in the coming weeks in Colossians 3.23, uh, but we'll, we'll jump there now. Colossians 3.23 says, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. So whatever you do, do it for God. If you serve on the worship team, do it for God. If you serve on the tech team, do it for God. If you have a job and go to work, do it for God. Not just the stuff you do on Sundays and Tuesdays. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't think that's directly saying that you have to treat every assignment from your boss like it's been handed down to you from God on high and think, oh, the weight of this project. I don't know how to organize these spatulas, like whatever it might be. (laughs) You don't have to treat everything like it's handed to you by God, but doing a good job at your work is a part of this. When you do something for the Lord, you're looking for ways to leverage what you're already doing to do what God has asked you to do to share the gospel and make disciples. So when you go to work, you should go with the goal of sharing the gospel with the people you come into contact with. And yes, you should do a good job, but not just for the sake of doing a good job. You do a good job to build rapport with the people around you, your bosses, your coworkers, the other people that visit the place you work, so that you can have the reputation and relationships you need to share the gospel. Try sharing the gospel with somebody who thinks you're a lazy waste of space. You've got no credibility with them, so don't be a lazy waste of space. Do your job for God. 
Don't be so focused on your work that you don't look around for opportunities to shine the light of Christ to the people around you. And this applies to us as a group as well. When we do something together as the church or as the well, we should be doing it for the Lord. So when we have an event like a gym night or whatever, use that as an opportunity to bring someone who might not be as comfortable coming to a Sunday morning service or a Tuesday night. Everything we do should be done in the name of the Lord. So we should strategically use things in our life and in our ministry to reach people with the light of Christ. And again, this is a whole lot easier if, we commit, if we're committed to doing the word of God and not just hearing it. James 1, through 24 says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man or he is like unto a man, beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. So, yes, be in your Bible every day, but reading it isn't enough. You have to let it change you. When you get up in the morning, you probably check your face in the mirror. Anybody not check their face in the mirror at all? You do. You're too pretty to not check your face in the mirror. <laughs> We all check our face in the mirror, and that's the example used here in James, beholding your face in a glass. A glass is just a mirror. Mirrors are made of glass. They're reflective. But when the mirror shows us something that's wrong with our face, we fix it. I don't see a booger hanging out my nose and then say, hmm, that's interesting, and walk away. No, I fix it. It's the same thing. (laughs) When you see something in the Bible that you're not doing right, don't just think, huh, that's interesting, and then walk away. Fix it. Fix it. Fix your life to line up with the Bible. Fix your life to line up with the way God expects it to look so that we can serve him in everything that we do and we can be more effective at doing that. And I realize that tonight was sort of a hodgepodge of stuff that we talked about with four different things and uh, that's kind of the nature of taking things verse by verse the way we do and the way we're doing here in Colossians. But everything we talked about falls under the umbrella of putting on the new man. And that's and, and, and what that life looks like and what it looks like to put on the new man in your life and in our life together as the body of Christ. So as we wrap up tonight, man, think about this stuff, putting on charity, letting the peace of God rule in your heart, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly such that you worship God together with other believers in spirit and in truth, both in songs and in your daily life and doing everything you do for the Lord. How are you doing with each of those things? Because each of them is part of putting on the new man. Each one of them is part of being conformed to the image of Christ. So what changes do you need to make in your life to look more like Jesus? What changes do you need to make so you can serve him more effectively? God wants to use all of us to build his spiritual kingdom on this planet. He wants to use all of us to reach the world with the gospel and make disciples. So what do you need to do to make sure you're more effective at helping with that? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for just the simplicity and clarity of your word. Oh man, I thank you so much that we have the Bible in our language and that we can all open its pages and read the same thing and you can communicate your truth to us. And God, I just pray that as we do that, you would, uh, you would teach us and guide us and direct us and help us change our lives to look more like you so we can be used by you both together and as a group. And God, I pray that as, as we continue into 2021 here that, uh, man, this would just be a year that, that you use First Baptist in the well to, to reach our community and to reach the world. We saw you do awesome things in 2020, and we're looking forward to what you do in 2021, and we're glad to be a part of it. We love you. Amen.